Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together to uh, examine church history, to look at the men that have gone before us and the example that they've set and uh, the way that they were able to commit to your word and to your truth and to hold to that even to death. We just pray that we might uh, learn from that and that we might be as committed to your truth and to the proclamation of that truth as much as they were. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I want to, um, uh, before we actually get into Jan Hus, uh, I, I want to review a few of the things that we've done here. Just take a few moments and talk about why we're doing this. We're working off of uh, Steve Lawson's book, uh, foundations of Grace, and we started a year ago, and we started looking at the very first church fathers, and uh, so far, and I, w- I want to run through this list, some of these names you'll remember, because we have taught in Sunday school here about each one of these men, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius of Lyons, Tertullian of Carthage, Cyprian of Carthage, Anastasius of Alexandria, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianus, I think it is, Ambrose of Milan, Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine as we most of us know him, uh, Isidore of Seville, and uh, Grant's uh, favorite department store founder, Gottschalk of Orbay, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, one of the English monastics. Um, and then we uh, finished up with two men, uh, Bernard of Claveaux and Thomas Branwardine. And Uh, Those were the last English scholastics. We worked through almost a thousand years there. And then last week, we started back again into this series and uh, looked at John uh, Wycliffe. Today, uh, who was one of the English uh, reformers, um, and you may recall some of the things that Grant had to say about him. And today, we're going to look at somebody that really springboarded off of what he was doing, and his name is Jan Hus. Uh, and why we're, we're doing this, why we're looking at all of these men? Well, um, as the book title uh, gives you some indication, Foundations of Grace, these men were all church fathers that, regardless of how the Catholic Church or the the um, uh, Eastern Orthodox have adopted them as saints and church fathers that they found important. Are we okay on the thing here? Um, A lot of these men were teaching the very fundamental doctrines of grace that we subscribe to. So when you look at their actual teachings and what they wrote and what they said, you'll see a consistency all through church history uh, that these men subscribed to and taught the same thing, the very fundamental truths. And J.I. Packer, in the foreword uh, of the book, writes this. A lot of this is called Calvinistic 
uh, theology, as you may know, but really it's the doctrines of grace, and you may also know that Steve doesn't particularly like that title, uh, Calvin, or Calvinistic uh, theology, because it brings up certain pictures of things uh, to some people, but really it's the doctrines of grace. But J.I. Packer says, this is the one point of Calvinistic soteriology which the five points are concerned to establish, namely, that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but that salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future, is of the Lord, to whom be the glory forever. So I think he really summarized why looking at what these men taught through the centuries is important because it underscores these doctrines of grace that do one thing and one thing only in their entirety, and that is point to the fact that salvation is of the Lord. So, let's start to talk here a little bit about our topic today. Jan, or Jan Hus, John Hus, was known as a Bohemian reformer. And when I first started studying this, I thought, Bohemia, well, I'm old enough that, you know, I think of a Bohemian as uh, they're the counterculture guys that kind of were the beginning of the original hippie movement back in the 50s, and, and they're the painters and um, writers that were really countercultural. And I thought, well, how does Jan Hus fit into that, and what is this about Bohemia? And um, so I started to do, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here so you understand the context of this, uh, and I looked up in, in uh, Wikipedia, if that's an authority, I'm not sure, but they defined uh, bohemianism is the practice of an unconventional lifestyle, often in the company of like-minded people with few permanent ties involving musical, artistic, or literary pursuits. In this context, bohemians may be wanderers, adventurers, or vagabonds. And the term bohemianism emerged in France in the early 19th century when artists and creators began to concentrate in the lower-rent, lower-class Romani neighborhoods. Bohemian was a common term for the Romani people uh, of France who were mistakenly thought to have reached, I guess from Romania, but reached France in the 15th century via Bohemia, which was a country we're going to look at. We can put that map up now, the next slide. Uh, at a time, and they came there through Bohemia, uh, at a time when the proto-Protestant country was considered heretical by many Roman Catholics during that time. And it's a little hard to see here, but... Where you think, uh, you, if you can see the blue country off, just off center a little bit, Hungary, and right up to the north uh, west of that is Bohemia, and that was a great uh, country uh, at the time, ruled a lot by the German uh, aristocracy and uh, by the German kings. Uh, there you go; it's got the pointer right there, and. Uh, while a lot of that today is both Germany and uh, other countries, as that's been divided up over time, uh, 
it makes up, the center part of that makes up what's called the Czech Republic today. And Prague is the capital there. And what we're going to look at today with Jan Hus uh, took place a lot right there in Prague. And so uh, this term, um, Bohemian, comes from that country and from the events that occurred right during this time. We're going to look at, at Jan Hus and see how he really started a revolution, not only in theology, but how that really spilled over into politics, too. And July 6th, we're going to find, is the day that Jan Hus was um, burned at the stake. And that's become a very big national holiday in the Czech Republic, and it commemorates the martyrdom of Jan Hus in the year 1415. So last year, if you do your math... Uh, was the 600th anniversary of uh, his execution, and um, it also led to a war. The Hussite forces defeated five consecutive papal crusades against the followers of Jan Hus, and that all happened after his death. You might want to put the next slide up there now. Um, and so 2015 marked the 600th anniversary of his death. And for a full month, they flew what was the Hussite uh, flag over the Prague uh, castle during that time. And that um, uh, statue there stands in front of the castle and is uh, part of a big square there. And so he's a very, very important part of uh, uh, the Czech Republic uh, history. And you'll see, I mean, it's very important to us, too, uh, in our um, understanding of uh, these doctrines of grace. So he was what they call a pre or a Bohemian pre-reformer. Uh, and with the start of the 15th century, 1400s there, uh, the seeds of reform had been planted in England, as we learned last week from Grant, and were making their way into the European countries. At this time, the city of Prague in Bohemia had come under the influence of some very powerful biblical preaching by some other men that uh, you know preceded uh, Jan Hus. This initial awakening came as a result of uh, guys like Conrad of Waldhausen, who preached from 1360 to 1369. He was followed by Jan Millick, who proclaimed the word of God until 1374. And then Matthew of Yeno uh, kept this movement alive until his death in 1394. And these prolific preachers really set the stage and prepared for a really fuller harvest of reform that would come with the, the Protestant reformers, not only with Jan Hus, but uh, even for the next several centuries uh, beyond that. Uh, this reform that started with John Wycliffe in England began to feed the movement in Bohemia after the year 1383. Now, this is really interesting, uh, I think, when you see how God is moving the chess players around here ahead of time. Anne of Luxembourg, who is the sister of the king of Bohemia, well, she linked up and married King Richard II of England. And so this was all about a big political alliance. And 
strengthening the uh, ties between those two nations. As a result of this, students between the two countries began uh, traveling back and forth between Oxford, where Wycliffe was, and Prague. And studying um, uh, was really facilitated by this um, uh, political link-up. So it's not surprising to see how God takes what we see as a marriage on a very secular level motivated by political um, motivations uh, or political ends, uh, and he used that to really spread the gospel and to start the seeds of this Reformation uh, in in an area that was really dominated by a corrupt religious system uh, in the Catholic Church. In England, Czech students studying at Oxford were influenced by the Reformed teachings of Wycliffe, and at that time, those students carried that God-centered truth back home to Bohemia, where Wycliffe's theology and views were widely adopted almost immediately. The impact of Wycliffism uh, upon the theological landscape of Prague was monumental and long-lasting. At the heart of this movement was a return to Scripture and a pursuit of some doctrinal integrity that had been lacking before, and really a return to personal purity. So uh, students were really the the beginning of this and embracing these doctrinal truths, and it really started some some reformational fires, as uh, it's often portrayed, which uh, were spreading across the continent and also, uh, unfortunately, I think you can carry that alliteration to uh, the fires at the martyr state because many of these men, including John John Huss, were uh, martyred and burned. So amid this theological change, Wycliffe's teachings caught fire in the heart of one particular man, and that's John Huss. He uh, was so consumed with Wycliffe's views that years later when the Bohemian reformer was called upon to give a defense of his doctrinal convictions. He simply stated that he had been reading Wycliffe's writings for 20-plus years, and the truths Wycliffe taught had come to be Huss's own. So with Huss on the scene, the movement to reform the Bohemian church had really found its, uh, it, its uh, champion. The religious reform in Bohemia brought a renewed emphasis on the doctrines of grace in this key hour in the church and in church history, the truths of sovereign grace were elevated to the forefront of the life of the church uh, once again. Uh, The torch of biblical truth was lit and the gospel light was kindled to extinguish uh, this darkness that had really uh, come from the Catholic church and um, and to correct these practices that were in in the church at that time. So, Jan Hus was um, uh, easily, I I think, one of the more significant uh, reformers. I mean, even some of the things that he did led to this war that we talked about. Uh, It was called the Hussite Hussite Wars. Um, So he really was instrumental uh, in this area in starting some things that uh, had lasting impact. He was a very gifted preacher. Uh, and a very leading popular exponent of this reform in the church. After his death, he was regarded as a national hero. 
He was solid in scriptures and well acquainted, and you'll see how uh, that came about with uh, Wycliffe's writings. He held to the sole authority of scripture, wrote against papal authority, proposed a Bible translation into the Czech language, just like Wycliffe uh, did into English, and introduced congregational singing. Oh, God forbid that would have congregational singing, yes, uh, in the Bohemian church. For, this, uh, for his convictions, he was condemned and martyred uh, a, year, a century before Martin Luther took his historic stand for the same truths. And these two guys were tied together in some really uh, important ways, unique ways. Huss was born in Husinic, or Husinitz, a small market town in southern Bohemia in what's still the modern Czech Republic. His parents were uh, peasant uh, people, but they were interested in seeing him educated and got him into elementary school, and later he went on uh, to uh, university studies. It's interesting, and you need to keep this in mind, Hus, his name, means goose, and that has some significance, which we'll touch on in a little bit. Um, He enrolled in 1390 in the University of Prague, uh, beginning what was to be a long relationship with this institution. During his student days, Hus was first exposed to Wycliffe's writings when he earned money by copying his works. So he sat down and just wrote, you know, copied all of these things. They didn't have the printing press then uh, to distribute these things. And five copies of the complete works of Hick of Wycliffe in Hus's handwriting remain in the Stockholm uh, Library today. And so you can see through this discipline of copying these things down how he became really absorbed in Wycliffe's teaching. So he graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1393. He earned a Master of Arts degree in 1396. And to support himself, he immediately began teaching philosophy and... um, Arts, which was really an honor for uh, such a young man. He was only about 20 at the time. Uh, He was later, a few years later, appointed a professor of theology at the University of Prague uh, in the year 1398 and became the dean of theological uh, faculty in 1401. He also became a priest, and part of that was motivated because uh, the country was very poor, and one of the ways that, uh, you know, people took care of themselves was if they went into the priesthood, they lived a little better life than the average um, person, uh, certainly better than his parents uh, had been raised as. Um, And then something during this time, and the the history of this is a little unclear, but during this time when he was teaching in the university and, and when he became a priest... Somehow he, even in the midst of all of this, and perhaps through the teachings of Wycliffe, he became converted to Christ and came into a true relationship uh, with Christ. And that made a big impact on his teachings from that point forward. In 1404, Jerome of Prague returned from Oxford with more copies of Wycliffe's writings, and these works uh, continue to impact Hus and others who read them, and especially concerning the spirituality of the church. These ideas birthed a movement in Bohemia that would influence uh, this whole Eastern uh, 
outside of uh, the continent there uh, in ways that they had not previously seen. Uh, who's a, especially agreed with Wycliffe's stance against clerical corruption with his opposition to the sale of indulgences, which you may all be familiar with. It's interesting, uh, during the study of this, I, got, I found two different movies about Hoos that I watched both of them. I wanted to learn as much as I could about this. One of them was produced by the Catholic Church, and it was interesting to see their spin on this whole thing. They're a little apologetic, but not real, not real apologetic about what happened to John Hoos. And they certainly really didn't back up too much from the indulgences. They tended to... Um, characterize that as well. It was it started out okay, but anyway, uh, interesting uh, standpoint. But most importantly, Hus agreed that the um, Wycliffe's teachings um, about the church being comprised of genuine believers uh, were within the institutional church. That the institutional church by itself wasn't the true church. This means. Hus believed, or Hus believed, that the true church is made up of the elect who are predestined to grace and glory. His position, this position, led Hus to reject from the Pope down the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church. He even concluded that the Catholic hierarchy was among the non-elect, meaning that they were false shepherds of the flock. So he was really brave in uh, some of the things, positions he took. In 1402, Hus was appointed the rector and preacher of the enormous Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. And this was a chapel that was built apart from the Catholic Church by some uh, wealthy men who wanted to see these types of teachings that Hus and the other men that preceded him were uh, preaching from the pulpit, so they wanted a forum for this to happen, and that was the Bethlehem Chapel. The sanctuary of this church was capable of seating 3,000 people. The church had been founded a decade earlier um, as this uh, forum for preaching. Two sermons a day were preached there in the language of the common people. The building could often not contain the, th- you know, the people that attended, not even three, more than 3,000 people. Hus was a careful student of the scriptures, and his sermons fanned really widespread support for Reformed thinking. Uh, the next slide is just kind of a uh, slide there that shows that he was a very uh, powerful preacher. Um, and that support for his uh, theology and his doctrines that he was teaching was especially true and popular among the university students who were, uh, who were appalled by the dead religion of Rome. As a result, uh, even riots uh, erupted in support of Wycliffe's, uh, Wycliffeism. I have a hard time with that word. Uh, in opposition to the erroneous and extra-biblical teachings of the Catholic Church. One commentator had this to say about what um, Hus was teaching. With a freedom and an evangelical spirit which reminds us of Luther, he testified against the vices of the clergy and the the nobility and did not spare even the pope and his court. Kindness and severity were both tried for the sake of silencing his voice, but in vain. 
Many of his sermons are so eloquent, so penetrating and powerful that they would scarcely be allowed, even in the present day, to appear in Austria without alteration. With him, gospel truth was everything, and in publishing publishing his works, this he cared little uh, for persons or rank. He thought with the apostles, and quotes Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 10, if I please men, I should not be a servant of Christ. So in the pulpit, who stressed the authoritative role of Scripture in the church? He elevated biblical preaching to a central place in the worship service. I mean, just like we see here today, right? His sermons were not ornate, but simple, lucid, fervent, and above all, thoroughly biblical, which was really revolutionary for the time that he was in. His preaching left an indelible impression on the minds of people, and from the pulpit he set forth a truth with sufficient force to make even Rome and the uh, Pope tremble. Uh, In May 28th of 1403, uh, Johann Hubner, a German teacher at the University there at Prague, selected 45 theses from Wycliffe's writings and secured from the faculty the charge of heresy against Wycliffe and against his followers. This condemnation by that group uh, that really split the university uh, between the German and the Czech professors, uh, one group you know, opposing Wycliffe and the other group defending him and Hus, um, uh, causes division in the, in the university. The new archbishop of Prague favored Wycliffe's reforms, so Wycliffe's writings and what Hus was supporting was accepted as the norm. And so uh, initially, at least, the reform movement began to grow. And this really gets, I'm not going to have time to go into all of the the political wranglings that went on, not only on the university, but the uh, the whole country. But this reads like some really intricate daytime soap opera. Uh, all of the different factions that were wrangling to uh, have their position um, heard and uh, dominant. And it's just amazing when you look at all of this that God was working through this and through this person of Jan Hus. Uh, the defiant Hus was summoned to appear in Rome because of his position. He refused to go to Rome to be called by the, the Pope. Uh, and it's interesting, too, at this time, if you look back, there was actually three different popes. Two of them were claiming to be Pope at the same time, one in the western part, uh, northwestern, uh, northeastern part, and one in the southwestern part. And so there was all this stuff going on at the same time. Uh, so Hus was uh, excommunicated at that time because of his refusal. It was actually, I think, the second time. He's actually excommunicated uh, four different times from the church. And I'll, in a little bit, we'll look at some of the things that were said at the last excommunication. Uh, when the king of... Um, Bohemia, though, changed the university's constitution. The German teachers and students left the school. So Hus then was elected rector of the university 
which was growing in its sympathy for Wycliffe. But this conflict between Rome and Hus was escalating, and Alexander's successor, um, Alexander the Pope, successor, was John the Twenty-Third. Now later, John the Twenty-Third was thrown off the the, the papal throne, uh, so to speak, and uh, they said that he's not even the the um, the Pope at that time. So the Catholic Church refused to recognize him, and then. Later in this last century, there was another John the Twenty-Third. If you recall anything about Catholic history, because they refused to deny this John um, the Twenty-Third at this time. But at the time, he was acting as Pope, and he um, uh, called uh, for Hus to submit again. Um, so anyway, John Hus was excommunicated a third time. Uh, by this pope. And then in 1412, some public demonstrations broke broke out in Prague and uh, aroused uh, more support for the reformational truths that Huss was teaching, a simulated papal bull, that was the demand that was made of Huss, uh, was burned publicly by the reformed students. And there was such a big riot that went on that three of the students were captured by the uh, the pro-Roman Catholic uh, forces, and uh, apparently they surrendered or let them be taken because they promised that these students weren't going to be harmed. But in fact, the Roman church took them off and cut their heads off, chopped their heads off. And so this really fanned the flames of what was happening. And so Hus, in an effort to try and calm everything down, went into a voluntary exile in southern Bohemia, where he remained during much of the conflict that continued the next two years. So there he did, he was writing and did some of his best works, including a book called Exposition of the Faith, uh, The Ten Commandments, and The Lord's Prayer. But later, in the fall of 1414, uh, uh, Pope John XXIII convened an ecumenical council in Constance, uh, Germany, called the Council of Constance, and they they called uh, John Hus to come and appear, and it, all of Hus's uh, friends warned him not to accept that invitation, not to go there. They suspected that there was an ambush waiting for him, but Hus was assured of safety uh, by the Holy Roman Emperor, Sigismund, um, who was the political force behind the church. Uh, So with that assurance, he went ahead and went to this council where he immediately was arrested, like his friends warned him against, and thrown into prison where he sat for eight months. Um, And there they put him in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon next to the latrine, and he got very sick and I think um, finally was visited by a doctor there and they moved him to another cell where his, um, his health got a little bit better. But in July of 1415, finally, Huss was uh, placed on trial for Wycliffeism. He was ordered uh, to condemn Wycliffe's work and Huss responded that he would yield to the church when instructed by Scripture. He stated that he supported Wycliffe, but would condemn any of the English reformers' teachings if they were proven wrong by the Bible. 
who's firmly held to the teaching set forth by Wycliffe, although they had been deemed heresy by the Roman Catholic Church, Scripture confirmed them to Hus's conscience. He was then urged to recant his own teachings. He later said, I have not recanted nor adjured a single article. The council desired me to declare the falsity of all my books and each article taken from them. I refused to do so unless they should be proven, proved false by Scripture. He also wrote, I refuse to be the enemy of the truth and will resist to the death all agreement with falsehood. It is better to die well than to live badly. In a letter to the University of Prague as his execution approached, he said, I, Master John Hus, in chains and in prison, now standing on the shore of this present life and expecting on the morrow a dreadful death, which will, I hope, purge away my sins, find no heresy in myself, and accept with all my heart any truth whatsoever that is worthy of belief. So he was condemned as a heretic. On July 6, 1415, the Council of Constance uh, declared the teachings of Wycliffe to be heretical. The council then solemnly condemned Hus as a leading exponent of Wycliffe's views, and in a humiliating ceremony, six bishops of the church stripped him of his priestly garments, shaved his head, and put on his head a paper hat that covered, uh, was covered with red demons and the word heretic. Finally, the bishops committed his soul to the devil and in response said, And I commit myself to my most gracious Lord Jesus. And then in the face of death, Hus then boldly proclaimed to his executioners, remember, remember his name now, Today you are burning a goose. However, a hundred years from now, you will be able to hear a swan sing. You will not burn it. You will have to listen to him. And these words would be fulfilled a hundred years later in Germany through Luther, who saw himself as the fulfillment of Hus's prediction. So the council then handed Hus over to the emperor, and Hus, bound in chains, was ordered to recant or die. He refused again. The soldiers led him away to be burned at the stake. And um, one more time, he was asked to recant. And he said, God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached. They accused him of a bunch of uh, other things, too. In the same truth of the gospel, which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the savings and positions of the holy doctors, I am ready to die today. And so that very afternoon at the execution site, commonly known as Devil's Place, Hus was burned at the stake, a martyr for the truth he'd preached so fearlessly. It is recorded that he died singing, Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Apparently they put him on the stake. They piled wood and everything up to his neck. They poured pitch all over the wood. And they used the books, the writings of Wycliffe, as kindling to light the fire. And 
burned him at the stake. And apparently the flames, after just a few times, as he said the last few words that I just read to you, uh, enveloped him, and uh, apparently God took him uh, very quickly. So, the Hus was dead, but the reform was just beginning. Hus's writings, let's take a look at that before we run out of time, and I'm running out fast here. One of the most famous uh, works that he uh, wrote was called On the Church. During his exile, um, you might even put this next slide up, um, that quote there is from uh, this book, On the Church, um, he finished that in July of 1413. Uh, in it, Hoos directly attacked the Pope's authority. It proved to be, next to Wycliffe's works, the most famous treatment on the church since Cyprian and Augustine had uh, written about it. His main argument was that the Christian church is the universal body of the predestined to life. The Pope and the Cardinals, he stressed, are not the church because they give no evidence of being numbered among the elect. Further, Hus insisted that Peter was never the head of the Roman Catholic Church, but only an equal with the other bishops. The work became the chief document of the Husite revolution that we've talked about. It even played an important role in Luther's eventual break from the Catholic Church and from the Pope. And he also, um, while he was in prison at Constance, he wrote many letters. Um, for example, Hus um, wrote this. He says, O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am, after thyself. For it is, if thou dost not draw us, we cannot follow thee. Strengthen my spirit, that it may be willing. If the flesh is weak, let my grace precede us. Let thy grace precede us. Come between and follow, for without thee we cannot go for thy sake to cruel death. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. So, um, even if Hus was considered not to have broken new theological ground by some. He certainly, as Steve uh, Lawson put in his book, uh, enriched the moral outlook of the church and of the true believers uh, through these letters that he wrote. Well, what was his theology? We talked about how he was really uh, in support of the different uh, doctrines of grace. And I want to look at six of those here. Uh, and like I said, he was not a, an original theologian. He didn't break new ground, but he was very clear in some of these areas. On di- first of all, on divine sovereignty, he firmly affirmed uh, the sovereignty of God. And he did this a lot through the writings of, or through his writings in, in talking about uh, the elect. Um, in particular. And he said that God alone has the power to kill and make alive, to destroy and to save, and to preserve his faithful ones in divers sore,
perils and grant unto them the eternal life with joy unspeakable. In other words, he was saying sovereignty resides, resides exclusively with God. And this comprehensive authority extends to every aspect of salvation. And some of his most uh, strong affirmations of his sovereignty are in the context of his appeals against the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. He said the Pope can't be the head of the church because there's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. So that was one area that he addressed. A second area of grace that he um, wrote about and preached about was radical depravity. He was clear about the state of hum- human nature. Natural man, he writes, is prone to greed, simony, pride, luxury, the forsaking and despising of God's word. Furthermore, he says, people are ensnared by the world, the flesh, and the devil, especially the vanities of this world. And so he's saying that all men are subject to judgment. He went on and said, there is at hand the judgment of a judge most awful, at whose bidding Necessity will be laid upon all men to publish their evil deeds to the world, and by whose will their souls and bodies will be burned in an everlasting fire. So it was really clear through that and some other things that he wrote that he held to a radical corruption of the human race in sin. Third area of grace that uh, he spoke to was sovereign election, and who frequently asserted the unconditional election of God. He wrote this, predestination is the election of the divine will through grace, or as it is commonly said, predestination is the preparation of grace making ready in the present time and of glory in the future. So having chosen his elect eternity past, what who's is saying, the Father gave them to the Son as a love gift to be his cherished possession. Who's went on and said, no one belongs to Christ's kingdom, which is the church, except the Son whom the Father gave to him. Therefore, merely being in the visible church, who's root, who's wrote, <laughs> It's not a guarantee of salvation. A right standing in grace belongs only to the elect. He asserted no place or human election makes a person a member of the holy universal church, but divine predestination does in the case of everyone who persists in following Christ in love. In other words, the sovereign will of God is the ultimate determiner of who comprises the church. He went on to say, too, that the elect already within the church can be identified by their persistent holy living. He said, if anyone is predestined to eternal life, it necessarily follows that he is predestinated unto righteousness. And if he follows life eternal... He had also followed righteousness, but the converse is not true, for many are made partakers of present righteousness, but from want of perseverance are not partakers of eternal life. 
So what he's saying is only the elect have a true righteousness that endures, which is something that, you know, is, that Steve teaches regularly. Others may give the appearance of being saved through a superficial righteousness, but in reality, they're not part of the elect. A fourth area that Jan Hus taught was definite atonement. Um, he wrote, and I'll just read uh, two different things that he wrote here that I think spell this out very clearly. Um, the Son of God, he says, that most patient and brave soldier, Jesus Christ, who knew he would rise again on the third day and overcome his foes by his death and redeem the elect from damnation. So he is saying that Christ understood that the cross was intended and chosen by the Father to, to redeem the elect. And he went on and he wrote, Christ came not to destroy the elect, but to save them. It is my elect, not the proud, the fornicators, the greedy, the wrathful, the envious, the world sick, the foes of my word and my life, but it is the elect that hear and keep my word and suffer with me in grace. So Hus was identifying uh, very clearly that Christ came to save the elect. Another area that Hus spoke to was preserving grace, um, and another area was divine reprobation. Um, I want to just read one of the areas here from preserving grace uh, before we conclude here. Um, he said two different things here. Uh, he's in agreement, really, in this passage with John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, where he says, uh, who says, Christ, the best of teachers, proves by the greatness of God's gift, which is the Holy Spirit, that no one is able to fall away from grace because his Father is almighty, and from his hand no one is able to pluck anything because Christ and his Father are one with the Holy Spirit, who is Christ's gift, by whom the church is knit together with him. Therefore, no one is able to pluck, to pluck his sheep out of his hand. And he went on in another place, and he says, God Almighty will strengthen the hearts of his faithful, of his faithful ones, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, that they might receive an incorruptible crown. And he went on and spoke about divine uh, reprobation also being something that was part of the foreknowledge of God. And um, this whole story about Hus and the things that he wrote and the life that he went through and all of these things that happened there at the University of Prague and, and the things that followed, uh, it it's really it's just a big dress rehearsal and setting the stage for what would follow a century later with Martin Luther, where he again picked up this uh, torch. And in February of 1520, a little over a century later, Luther said, "Without knowing it is, without knowing it, I both taught and held the teaching of Hus. In short, we were all Husites without knowing it." Luther saw himself as a fulfillment of Hus's prediction of a coming swan, and 
Luther wrote in 1531, John Huth prophesied of me when he wrote from his prison in Bohemia, they will, not, they will now roast a goose, but after a hundred years they will hear a swan sing. Him they will have to tolerate, and so it shall continue if it please God. So that was Huss's enduring influence on Luther and uh, the other reformers. Charles Spurgeon said this about John Huss. They burnt John Huss and Jerome of Prague, but Huss foretold as he died that another would arise after him, whom they should not be able to put down. And in due time, he more than lived again in Luther. Is Luther dead? Is Calvin dead today? That last man that the moderns have tried to bury in misrepresentations, but he lives and will live, and the truths that he taught will survive all the culminators uh, that have sought to poison it. So Steve Lawson uh, concludes this portion here about John Hoos with these words. He says, By God's grace, the truths that Hoos proclaimed in his day live on in our generation. Hoos's gospel is our gospel, and that which thundered in Prague during the 15th century must thunder again in this present hour. May the Bohemian reformer exert a lasting influence on a new generation of believers in this day. May all those predestined by God be strong in this hour of history for God's glory and for the good of his people. And may we pass the inheritance of the doctrines of grace to generations yet to come. So... There we go. John Hoos. John Hoos. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the um, way that you have preserved uh, your word uh, through bold and fearless men like Jan Hoos and uh, Calvin and Luther and others uh, that uh, preceded us. We just pray that we might as Steve Lawson even writes in his book today, um, that we might be as brave and as fearless as those that preceded us, that we might have the same confidence in our destination and in the truth of your word uh, that uh, John Hoos was able to state even to the point of death. And we just thank you for this example, and we pray that we might be as honoring to your church and to your word as they were. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.